0: Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider donating. Even if you toss me five bucks, it makes me feel better and as if you actually care about me. Visit www.writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click on "Support the Blog" to donate, either by giving to GoFundMe, through PayPal, or you can support me by buying me a coffee, which, trust me, is dearly needed. Today's guest is Anne O'Brien Corelli, author of Skylark and Wall Creeper, a middle grade story that alternates between Brooklyn in 2012 and the German-occupied town of Broom in 1944. Anne volunteers with refugee children and has a PhD in the study of leadership and psychology of the gifted. Anne joined me today to talk about writing for children and the amount of research required to write historical fiction, no matter the age of the reader. Need help getting your manuscript or query letter into shape? Emily Martin Editorial Services offers a range of critique packages to suit your needs. Visit EmilyMartinEdits.com for package details, client testimonials, and to reserve your spot. Mention the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire podcast for 10% off any service. You write for children. And I've had a couple of children's book authors on the podcast before, and most of them have a shared story that the general public thinks it's easy to write a children's book. So (laughs) more like a hobby than real work. Any thoughts on that?
1: I've had really mixed reactions uh, when people find out that I've written a children's book, uh, mainly because I've written nonfiction for adults in the past. So a lot of them are kind of surprised. And either they recognize that it's difficult to sit down and pump out a book and and they respect that, or they think that it's just a really fun, easy thing to do, Mm -hmm. uh, especially uh, writing picture books. And it can be a wonderful hobby if you're writing for your own personal experience of sharing your thoughts or creating a story or recording your observations, that kind of thing. Uh, but if you're interested in getting published, then it's a lot more challenging and a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. It, it does take persistence. It takes real commitment and dedication, not just a great idea and some creativity, Most of the authors that I know in the children's world who want to be published are incredibly hard workers and very, very focused on their craft. What always surprises people who are not authors, who are not writers, is when I tell them that I think that picture books are the hardest to write Mm -hmm. because, of course, they've read them to their children and their grandchildren. They think, oh, well, this, this was quick and easy. I could write this. I've had the opportunity to write tons of publications for my business over the years, but I've also published nonfiction textbooks, middle grade historical fiction, which is my new book of Skylark and wall creeper. That's middle grade and a picture book and the picture book came about because I've spent uh, many, many years working with refugee children. Mm-hmm. And I thought of a picture book idea for refugees and for the kids that are in their classrooms. And I thought, oh, well, this will be easy. I'll just write a picture book. So I'm going from writing a textbook to drafting a picture book. It's called Amina's New Friends. Mm -hmm. And boy, did I learn the hard way. (laughs) It takes several rewrites and lots and lots of feedback to get it right. Very, very hard to do. Every word every syllable counts in a picture book. I didn't fully understand that myself until I actually went through the process. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting question.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard too that the children's book arena is actually one of the hardest places in publishing to break into because of this, because so many people are like, yeah, I can do that. Right. And so uh, there are so many submissions and so many people out there throwing their stuff in front of uh, agents and editors and that it's uh, highly competitive and and very difficult to break into as well. So, I mean, what was your experience on that end as far as beyond the craft, just the actual publishing uh, process?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because I had no idea. Um, it's not to say that writing for adults isn't competitive, but it's a little different process. I mean, mm-hmm. you could submit a proposal before you've actually written the book. Right. With children's books, not only do you have to have a manuscript, but it, it is an extremely challenging and detailed craft. I don't mean formulaic, but there are some expectations about particular genres, And the writing really has to be good. And then, of course, the story has to be good and the character development. And when I first realized how competitive it was, was when I went to the SEBWI conference in New York City. Mm -hmm. And there were thousands of people there. And a lot of them had manuscripts. And I, I sat next to an agent who was, during one of the speakers, was sitting, she had a Kindle and mm-hmm. she was swiping the queries that she was getting one by one by one. I mean, it was, it was, you know, right, 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 oh left, right, 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 right. It was fascinating watching her. Wow. And that's how many hundreds of queries she was getting a day. Wow. And she was making an instant decision based on the one or two sentences mm-hmm. about whether she wanted to read anything more let alone look at the manuscript that was a real eye-opener for me and I had a lot of ambivalence about why was I doing this I was writing for fun I was learning a lot I was enhancing my craft I would of course love to get the book in the hands of children but I realized it's not so easy to do that and it takes a while and it takes a while to get an agent or to get an editor's attention and then it could you never know a lot of it's serendipity It's very competitive. And I've heard a number of people at these conferences and writing workshops talk about how naive they were Mm and thinking that just because they read to their children at night doesn't
0: mean they can turn around and write a book. Similarly, it's interesting to me when I talk to parents or grandparents even that read to their children, going in another direction as far as creativity, they may not think that they can write a children's book or a chapter book or whatever the case may be, but they think that because their children love to be read to, They're like, I think I can be an audiobook narrator. And I'm like, no, (laughs) no, you can't. It's like, I mean, that's cool that you want to try and by all means go for it. But like that is an actual art. Those are those are professional trained actors that are doing those audiobooks. And it's not just you have a pleasant speaking voice or you have good inflection. It's not just reading a book. It's a performance
1: and just because your grandchild's enjoying you doesn't mean that it's something that you can do for a living. I had an interesting experience with that. Uh, As I said, I've worked with refugees, and I did a number of movies um, interviewing refugee kids and interviewing their parents, and they were basically uh, talking about what it's like to come to America. and, Mm -hmm. And so I was working with a film company, and they had a studio. So I said, I wonder if I could read some children's books and then I could, you know, give those out to refugee kids when they arrive. And they said, sure. I mean, I wasn't doing it to earn any money. I just thought I would try it. This was very serious studio recording. Mm -hmm. When I played it back, of course, everybody's always surprised at their own voice. Yeah. But they told me that I had a little catch in my voice that no one has ever commented on. I certainly have never noticed it, but it was picked up Mm-hmm. by the audio I mean it picks up every little nuance yep and it ruled me out immediately for being able to do anything professional because it wasn't wasn't a speech problem it's just the way I talk yeah there's a lot of assumptions and sometimes I just have to smile when people look at the book and they say oh this must have been fun <laughs> and it was mm-hmm. but it's a lot more complicated and a lot harder than that Absolutely,
0: yeah. Fun is part of it, but like maybe twenty percent, maybe fifteen, and eighty-five is work and effort. Yeah,
1: yeah. And then the post-publication part—I had no idea—was mm-hmm. uh, so rigorous in terms of participating in the marketing of the book. Oh, absolutely. I'd heard about it, but I hadn't. You know, now that I'm living it, it's a it's a profession, and you have to really take it seriously.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. We're not just writers anymore. We're also marketers. Yes. Yeah, we're we're not in our ivory tower with a typewriter.
1: <laughs> that's that's not yeah, happening. <laughs> I know. Thinking up great ideas and then writing them down and handing them in. It right. doesn't work that way no, at all. No,
0: isn't. And the no thing
1: that's the also interesting that I learned early on was I could get lots and lots of positive feedback and some of it critical but helpful feedback from a small critique group, and I had a couple of editors that I know who were willing to read things. I had a couple people outside my genre who gave a cold read. So I asked for a lot lot of people to not only read the book as a story, but I had a curator of a museum read for historical accuracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, had a lot of players involved, and all of them were saying to me, oh, you know, if you fix this or you fix that, it'll be great. It's good. You got to get this book out there. And so I had a lot of positive feedback. When I started submitting it originally to editors before I got my agent, I would get something back and they were nice. They were very kind, but they would say, well, you probably should have done this or (laughs) I would have preferred this. And that's when I realized how subjective the critiques are from Uh editors and from agents. They're looking for very specific things. They know what the market is. They're very acutely aware of what is of interest in the field, but they also have their own personal views about what they like to read. Right. It's a lot of work to ferret out the individual or the editors who are going to connect with what you are writing. And Mm -hmm. I was very lucky to get an agent who got it and understood. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's been wonderful. But boy, that took a while.
0: Yeah, how long did it take you? How long were you querying?
1: Well, it's funny because somebody was asking me that the other day. I remember when I did the first draft of Skylark and Wall Creeper was right after Hurricane Sandy. Oh wow. But it was way different and Mm -hmm. I sat down. I'm a pantser so I tend to just write and I didn't even know I was going to write a children's book. I had you know done the picture book but I didn't know I was going to write this as middle grade and I started writing and writing and writing because I just finished interviewing a nurse in New York City who had helped to evacuate her patients from her nursing home Mm -hmm. during hurricane Sandy, I was writing something for her Mm -hmm. and she told me her story and I thought, Oh, this would be a great book. So I started writing, 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 and I finished it. And then it was almost a year later that it was finely tuned and the French resistance was folded in because that's a real interest of mine. Mm-hmm. And then it was another six, nine months before I started to actually hear back mm-hmm. from editors. I mean, that's how long it takes. Mm-hmm. And and they were, you know, they either passed or they asked for a revision. So I had to do revisions and then eventually carry Uh, Pastrita was my agent. She saw it and that was serendipity. She signed. And then of course, she then had to send it out to get editors to look at it Mm -hmm. and keep prodding them. And then finally, little B decided that they were going to publish it. So a lot of it is not really about the writing of the book and how long it takes to write a book. I just wrote a book Uh, another one that I just finished. It took me three months to write it. It's been in my head, Mm -hmm. but I know it's going to take a couple of years minimum to get, maybe get it on a shelf. Yep, absolutely. It's
0: a very, very long process. Very long process. Coming up, using incubation and your subconscious to think your way around the sticky spots in your manuscript. Witness the opioid epidemic through the eyes of a high school softball star. Kirkus calls heroin a cautionary tale that exposes the danger of prescription medications by humanizing one victim of America's current epidemic. Heroin by Mindy McGinnis. So you mentioned that you met with a curator of a historical museum, which leads me to my next question. You're writing children's books. But they are historical. So you're doing, I'm assuming, a lot more research than your average reader probably guesses.
1: Every writer, they have to do some basic research, especially if they're writing about a time period that's different. Although even contemporary books, you've got to make sure your research is correct. But I would have to say that most authors of historical fiction have chosen that genre because they love to do the research. You have to love it. It's digging for information for me is the fun part. For Skylark and Wall Creeper, it takes place in both New York City during Hurricane Sandy, but it also takes place in southern France during the French Resistance in World War II. Mm -hmm. So for the research, um, even though I had done a lot of research over many years on French Resistance, I visited all the sites that are in the book, I looked at books, I went to museums, I went to historical societies, I talked to historians, I got sort of backstage tours from curators, I've had a curator look over the materials. The best part is when you go to primary sources, Mm -hmm. and I just really want to make sure they're accurate, because you can't, as we know, can't really rely on some of the books or the textbooks. Right. I read diaries and I looked at old maps, which I love. And I was walking through battle reports and ration books and old letters and some of the old underground French resistance newspapers. I have a modicum of French, um, which has faded over the years, but I was able to sort of translate those. And of course, a lot of things now are online. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, you have to, you know, you have to find a library that has something. And go to it, and they'll dig it out, and you can look at it. You know, you have to research things that a lot of people don't think about. What was the weather? What was the clothing? What was mm. the food? What were the snacks that they ate? How did they cook something? Slang, language, uh, some of the games the children played. What tools did they have? I mean, there's all those details, and you have to make sure that you get it right because it really throws readers if something is not of the time period or isn't something that a particular group of people would use, mm-hmm. especially if they're well-versed in the history. It stops them cold when they see that there's a problem. I can give you an example of this. A friend of mine was telling me this the other day. She is a an appraiser of antique quilts, mm-hmm. okay? So she knows all about fabric, color, design, all of that in different time periods. So she was watching the movie Lincoln. And towards the end, there's a very, very powerful scene. And the dialogue is really important. And all she could do was focus on a quilt that was on the back of a rocking chair. And she's studying the colors and the pattern and she was very pleased to see that it was all correct for the time period. It definitely would have been in Lincoln's office. Viewers or readers, they like to feel confident that you got it right, mm-hmm. that that your details are correct.
0: Yeah, I'm that way with farming whenever I'm watching a movie. And people that make movies generally know nothing about farming. So <laughs> <Right>. it's usually <laughs> wrong. So it's like anytime anything is set on a farm and an actor is doing something that they think a farmer would be doing, I'm just like, nope, that's 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 uh, completely wrong. I know what you mean. And it's interesting. You're talking about the level of detail and you're talking about things like clothing and food. It is so important to get those things right, even if it slows you down, even if it stops you. I have been working on an adult novel set in 1918 during the Spanish flu. And I was writing a scene in the schoolhouse, the little town, one room schoolhouse. And the teacher suddenly feels very ill. And she thinks, you know, I have, I have the flu and she doesn't want to be near the children. She's worried that she's going to infect them. And so she like bolts out of the schoolhouse, but she falls like on the steps. And she has uh, succumbed very violently to a sudden attack of the flu, which did happen. And so I had researched the flu To this great extent where I was like, is she going to very suddenly be stricken? And I researched and researched and read thousands of pages like, yes, she could be. And then I wrote this scene where she goes down the falls, like kind of rolls halfway down the steps. And when people find her, in my mind, one of her shoes had come off. One of her shoes had fallen off and had like, you know, landed a couple steps below her. But did it. But did it. So I had to go look at shoes, shoe wear. For 1918 for roughly yep. her income level and geographic area. And it's like, no, it probably wouldn't have because it would have had two, it would have had buttons. Her shoe would not have come off.
1: Yeah, I totally understand that. You every single detail. And when you were telling that and you said her shoe came off, the first thing I thought of was, what was her heel made out of? Uh-huh. And what kind of shoe was it exactly you you really have to do that now you have to be careful that you don't go down the rabbit hole too because i have found myself i'll be researching something and it's so interesting and i just keep reading and reading and then i find another source and then i go and find that newspaper and then and then i realize about three hours later that i really am off track that 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 was not what i was originally researching but there's all kinds of detail that you can dig out that you can then build into your story. Right. I don't know how many people are going to read your story and say, well, wait a minute, her shoe wouldn't have fallen off, but it's enough to make sure that they can trust you. Right. So that everything else they have is, is appropriate. Right. And I've certainly been reading along in, in historical fiction books saying, well, that's not possible. That's (laughs) not true. And then, you know, I may continue reading, but the credibility is eroded.
0: Right, totally. And that's where I come from, too. One of the great pieces of advice that I have read for when you're writing uh, specifically historical fiction, or, but also if you're even writing like um, a contemporary murder mystery and you're writing about like a police procedural, one of the pieces of advice that I've read that I think is true is that we're not writing this scene, whatever it may be, in order to fool an expert. Like we don't have to write it for the expert. We have to write it for the average reader. And that's true. But at the same time, if I can convince that expert that I know what I'm talking about, I'm going to go for that.
1: Yes. Yes. And it was interesting in this case, because individuals who were members of the French resistance did not, of course, record anything. Mm -hmm. They had to keep their identity secret and they didn't even know each other's names mm-hmm. because they didn't want to reveal it if they were arrested. So it was extremely difficult to dig out their original diaries or notations. Plus, a lot of them had secrets that they carried to the grave. I yeah. mean, they might have lived you know, many, many years after the war, but they still knew a lot. That part was fascinating for me, was trying to find the ones who eventually did write a book or maybe the grandchild or child had interviewed their parents and recorded the history. It's very similar to people who have survived the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. They don't talk about it, and then you know their stories start to unfold. Because I bothered to do that, because I love doing it, it enriches the story. Mm-hmm. I found out what people were actually thinking and what did they actually go through. And of course, I'm writing for middle grade, so I have to be careful about how much detail I go into. But it helped me frame the characters and frame the story. Digging out the history is, is really enjoyable.
0: So you've been a guest on the blog before, and we talked about incubation, letting an idea sit and percolate, especially overnight. So can you talk a little bit about how that process of incubation works for you? I've taught a lot
1: of classes and I studied creativity for my degree and incubation is is part of the creative process. But basically incubation is sort of the unconscious part of growing an idea, of brewing an idea. Every one of us has creativity, just like every one of us has um, intelligence. Mm -hmm. But both of those things need to be cultivated. And one way to cultivate creativity and solve problems creatively, is to let your brain work on something for a while while you are doing something else. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of empirical evidence for this, but it's a kind of a fascinating process. So for me, if I think about a problem or some sort of conundrum that's related to my book, I usually give it a lot of thought before I start writing. A large portion of my writing is actually thinking, thinking, thinking. But incubation is effective when you're actually not focusing intentionally on the problem. And I was very skeptical about this at first, but it seems to work especially well if you think about a problem or a question right before you go to sleep. You might think about it a little bit before you drift off, but basically you let your mind do the work while you are sleeping. For example, let's say you've reached a point in your novel where you're kind of stuck or you need a really good idea to give your story some sort of a boost, mm-hmm. you put your head on the pillow and you ask yourself a question related to that. One question might be What would be a good nickname for my character? Mm. Now, you may think, okay, well, you'd think about that all the time. And while you're writing, it may occur to you. That's true. But sometimes when you put your head on the pillow and you wake up the next day and you're going about your business, all of a sudden you think of something that you just never would have dawned on you. It did not occur to you earlier. Mm-hmm. A better one, I think, is the other question I give as an example is, how will my main character get out of that tunnel? Mm. And you know, you think of the obvious answers and then you talk to people about ideas and put your head on the pillow, let your your brain sort of ruminate. And I don't really understand this, but the next day there will be some sort of eureka moment. Hmm. Like out out of the blue, something will occur to you that seems to answer that question. Mm -hmm. You're going to get some sort of clue about another way to think about something. Mm -hmm. It's kind of weird when it happens, but when I encourage people to try it, A lot, a lot of times people come back and say, you know, I tried that. And I had this idea that I never would have thought about if I hadn't ruminated on it for a while.
0: The uh, human brain is an amazing thing. I've read before when, you know, when you're having a conversation with someone and they say, yeah, you remember that person or the name of this band or that movie or the actor that was (laughs) in this. And no one, this is, of course, before we all had cell phones, but no one can come up with it. And you're all like, yeah. Well, it'll come to me at two in the morning, and you'll yeah. like wake up at two in the morning, and you're like, oh yeah, that was that guy's name. And the reason yeah,
1: why I've had that many conversations where we'll grow sweet we'll, talking, nobody can think of the name. And 20 minutes later, we're all into a completely different topic, and someone will shout the name out, because it's been in the recesses of the brain, but it sort of worked itself forward. Yeah. And, you know, the creative process is, I mean, the whole creative process is absolutely fascinating to me, and how the different parts of the brain uh, work together. But this one, I really thought, oh, come on, you know, how can that really work? And I Just kept trying it. And, of course, what they tell a lot of students is right before you go to sleep, before a test, assuming you can fall asleep, think through what you want to make sure you remember. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing with this. You say, okay, here's my question. And you articulate it and then try to go to sleep. And the thing is, if you have difficulty falling asleep because you're ruminating, you know, you're going on over and over about something, for some reason this also helps You sort of take you off the hook. And you say, okay, my brain's working on this. I can go to sleep
0: now. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds simplistic, but
1: it's pretty remarkable how it works. I can point to things in my manuscripts that occurred to me as a result of that process, mm-hmm. at least emerged from that process. Very interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, the brain is fascinating. And I think all of that idea of background work where it is, it's doing the job, even though you may not be consciously aware of all of those synapses firing, like it's doing the deep work and it's going to get it done. You just have to wait for it to return that answer back to your forefront, to your conscious thought.
1: Yeah. And it, and when I'm deeply immersed in writing, either writing a story or revising my books, so my brain has really been absorbed with the topic. I mean, I look up and it's suddenly five o'clock, you know, and I've been sitting there all day. That's when I realize that it, something will occur to me a couple of days later that I hadn't thought of. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked me for another book. One of the characters managed to get from point A to point B. And I had really worked hard to figure out how was she going to get from A to B given the time period. And then somebody asked me, well, how did you come up with that? And I laughed because I had an original plan. I worked it all out and I would, was thinking and thinking and thinking about it. While I was writing for a couple of days, and by the third day, I thought, you know, it's like your character with the shoe. I knew there was something wrong with it. Mm-hmm. And my brain was kept saying, eh, go back and look at that. Mm-hmm. And I found a flaw that made it so that it was not feasible. You think that writing this is all easy. People think you just, you know, sort of flow it out and all falls into place. But you have to watch for every single line Mm -hmm. and make sure that it's feasible or it's at least a unique way of doing something and a unique story, and yet still people are going to buy it. Yeah. Uh, I don't mean cash. I mean, actually (laughs) accept it. A lot of that is because you've been mulling the whole time and thinking it through. That's why I really love my agent, because she's an editorial agent, Mm -hmm. and I only give her finished, well, quasi-finished manuscripts. I don't keep sending her things back and forth. Right. She will write me notes saying um, she walked two miles. I don't know, Could she do that before it got dark? Mm-hmm. You know, questions like that that make me step back and say, okay, wait a minute. Let me think this through because she wants to be the reader who believes my story. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And I encourage anybody to find critique groups, writing partners who will do that for you, mm-hmm. who will question you.
0: Yeah. Not just be complimentary. Compliments do not make you a better writer.
1: That is absolutely true. Absolutely true. It may make you feel good for
0: a while, yeah. but it's not the way to do it. You're not going to grow. Absolutely not. You also mentioned when we talked before on the blog that you have a trunked novel tucked away. So <laughs> you I know we all do. That's for sure. And I was wondering about the age category for those. Do you plan on writing for different age groups at any point in the future?
1: Um, Well, the one that's in the trunk was also middle grade. Every once in a while I take it out and look at it. It was kind of ahead of its time, believe it or not, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the topic. Now the topic is really hot, so I have to look at it and see whether it fits. I've written additional picture books, but they're for older children, ages four through four through six. Mm-hmm. And I'm working on one now. My agent has a couple of them. But I really love writing middle grade mm-hmm. for that sort of ages eight to 14. That age to me is really kind of a mixture of openness and a little bit of naivete yeah. and innocence. And yet, especially in like around sixth, seventh grade when they come back mid year and they're completely different people because they've grown up a little bit yeah. and hormones have kicked in yeah but they have this sort of mixture of this innocence and yet they're very wise yeah and they're very observant and they're they're sometimes cranky but a lot of times they're hurting. They're sort of figuring out how to navigate the world. They're suddenly looking up and saying, oh, you know, this is up to me. Mm-hmm. They're very often very self-reliant. Mm-hmm. I love aiming in at that particular population. Today, there are just so many kids who cope with so many things. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the fact that middle grade novels are now acknowledging the reality of these kids' lives. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, they're not really, away It's really, it's quite impressive
1: because it's changed quickly over the years. I mean, they're still providing opportunities. There's a lot of good storytelling. There's a lot of fantasy, mm-hmm. and but the kids um, are more than ever seeing seeing characters solve a problem. They see hope, mm-hmm. which I you know really like to incorporate in my books and I greatly greatly admire people who can write YA fantasy or dystopian I am very reality based mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know even though I write stories that are made up yeah I like the whole notion of helping a middle grade kid think something through and not feel alone I think that's going to be my genre. I really do.
0: Yeah. I think, too, with that age range, because I was a librarian with a a wide range of ages for a long time. And I love the sense of curiosity. Underneath it is still that
1: huge sense of wonder. Yeah. And yet they're remarkably sophisticated, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm mentoring a class now that I signed up to mentor, and I got assigned this group that's out in Illinois, and it's a class of voracious readers. And I've been sort of feeding them books and skyping with them, and I am just blown away. I mean, they're they're from all walks of life and all reading levels and all life experiences, and they're just like sponges. Mm -hmm. And I don't worry so much about vocabulary. If they don't know what it means, they figure it out from context or they look it up. I'm so impressed. And yet, as you said, they're still kids. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't want to be too overwhelmed. They don't want things to be too harsh. Yeah. But they love, still love using their imagination And at the same time, you can build their empathy and they're open to that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Many eons ago, I was a sixth grade teacher and a social studies teacher. And that population has always really appealed to me because they're kind of an enigma. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) they are. But they're fun to write for.
0: Yeah, it's a great age group. All right. So last thing, tell us where listeners can find you online. I'm
1: pretty active on Twitter with a lot of writers and librarians and teachers, and that's at A-O-B-C, mm-hmm. as in Ann O'Brien Corelli, A-O-B-C. And then Instagram is Corelli. I have a website, which is my name, com.
0: Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis, music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.